This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Father Dan, how have you been? Hey, David, I'm good. Like you, fellow academic, it's that time of year where everything is bananas, as the kids used to say, doubt they say it anymore. Final exams are over, and at least on our campus here at St. Mary's, it is Seniors Week with an eye toward commencement this weekend. I'm very excited to share. I guess this drops on Wednesday, so Saturday will be our commencement exercises that the 2022 commencement speaker and an honorary degree recipient at St. Mary's College at Notre Dame is none other than uh, Professor M. Sean Copeland, who was one of my mentors in graduate school just a tremendous, a tremendously influential theologian and scholar and an amazing person, holy person, brilliant person. So I couldn't be happier with that news that she'll be addressing our senior students as they're making their way to the next stage and chapter in their lives. So that's really exciting here. And yeah, Heidi, how are, how are you? What's going on in your world? Well, that is exciting news about Enshan Copeland. I studied her in graduate school and have gotten to cover her several times. So the graduates are very lucky to have somebody like that speaking to them at their graduation. Things are great here. We're all in the roughly Midwest area, so we're enjoying the first tastes of spring slash summer here already, and I'm really looking forward to that. I had a great Mother's Day yesterday, so we're recording this on Monday. I got to go visit my own mother and my sister, who's a mother, and to spend time with my kids and tell them, as I do try to tell them pretty regularly, how being a mother is like the best thing in my life. And one of them asked me, what about marrying daddy? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, he's up there, too. 1.5. <laughs> so what about in your family, David? Did you celebrate Mother's Day? We did. 
as I've mentioned before, my wife's uh, parents live about six blocks from us here in Hyde Park. And so we all gathered together at their house and had a Mother's Day feast with roast chicken and all of that. But it has been one of the first really spring-like weekends here in Chicago. And listeners, if you've ever heard that song by the band Chicago, Saturday in the Park and Every Day's the Fourth of July, I want to tell you, as a person who lives in Chicago and now has lived here for a decade, that song is speaking a real truth because the winters are so long and so harsh that as soon as everything begins to bloom again, people make the most of it. So we were out walking. We walked several miles both days this weekend, just had a lovely time, enjoyed being outside and kind of being around just the return of life on the trees and with the flowers. And so it was a a very lovely weekend. We didn't get as much of the house cleaned as we would have liked to. But as my wife reminds me, some days you just got to say the house can wait. Let's go and enjoy this. And so we really did that. And it was a lot of fun. And so, Dan, you're a runner. Now that the weather's changing, have you had a chance to get out and do some running? I have, yeah. And there are a lot of things I I miss about my time in Chicago. You know, there are always pros and cons uh, to every place one lives. I love South Bend, which is my primary home these days, though I'm back in Chicago a a bit. And we don't have Lake Michigan here, but we have the St. Joseph River, which is the, the Lake Michigan of northern Indiana, apart from the lake itself. And there is actually a really nice trail that goes along the river. Unfortunately, for much of this last academic year, it's been under construction. Part of that is the University of Notre Dame's building a kind of water turbine for renewable energy and have dug up a lot of the kind of trail to lay equipment and and wires, it seems, and that kind of stuff. And then they've repaved it. And there have been other kind of updating and that kind of stuff. So All of that is to say it's been harder in the winter months and in the pseudo spring that we've had to enjoy that trail. But I'm happy to report that uh, much of that trail has been reopened. So cyclists and runners and walkers and people with dogs and kids are back out there again. And it's really nice. So, yeah, thanks for asking. I've got a couple road races coming up this summer that I usually do and I haven't done since the beginning of the pandemic. So I'm kind of excited about that. And I guess I need to get back to running. You and, and your family were doing some running. I know you and your daughter were working on, on running. How's that going? It's kind of come and gone. We are still trying to get out and walk as much as possible. We are trying to be active, but the couch to 5K that you're referencing, that never quite got off the ground for us. Although now that the spring is coming back, we do have in the family budget a new pair of running shoes for me. And so I'm hoping that I can get out and start doing it again, because as I mentioned to you, I was a runner back when I lived in Atlanta and I do miss it. There's been a lot of things that have had to kind of get settled before I can get back to it. But I'm hoping this summer, along with my long convalescence, to kind of get back into things. I, I'm And I'm here to say, like, walking over running. I've never been a runner, <laughs> but walking is so much better for your knees. It feels like such an old person's exercise, but I love it. So so I, I encourage the walking. I'll just say, as a Catholic, I'm for the both and. I love walking and, and I love running. And so, yeah. <laughs> As my Jesuit friends would say, there is that of God in all things, walking and running. And so (laughs) (laughs) let me also take a moment and talk about something that happened in the last two weeks that a lot of listeners flagged for us, and we're glad that you did. So we use a third-party service here on the show to feed ads into certain parts of the flow of the program. And we have control over kind of what ads are not to be listed 
and we have worked with that third-party company to really kind of limit certain types and categories of advertising that gets paired with our show. However, this last time when we released, I'm not sure exactly what happened, whether it was a change on their end of the categories or something like that. But what we came to realize was that several listeners were getting ads that were feeding in one case, an ad about gambling, in one case, an ad about some news programs that really don't fit with the tenor of our program. And I went back and worked with that third-party vendor to do, who does our advertising to really try and reconfigure our ad limitations to really figure out what happened. And the best that we can figure out is, and this may not surprise some listeners, that very right-wing organizations are looking to advertise on religious programming. And so somehow between their desire to advertise on religious programming and the limitations that we put on, we had some of these ads come through that don't really fit with our politics or our way of thinking about how religiosity or Catholicity should really kind of work in the world. So I do want to say it does not reflect our politics or the position of this show at all to have advertising about gambling or right-wing politics on the program. These were things, nevertheless, that did come through, and so we do take responsibility for them. I want to apologize for that and say we're working to make sure that kind of pairing doesn't happen again, because I don't think it's good for our show, but I also don't think it's good for the advertisers. It's not a good use and stewardship of their money to try and reach our audience. So I'm happy if folks want to email us about that and, and have more questions. I'm happy to continue to, to try and explain what's happening with this, but I my hope is that for the most part, this is a, a, a one-time event that won't happen again. One other thing to talk about, of course, is, and we've mentioned this before, but now it's becoming more concrete. We did win an award for one of our episodes with the Religion Communicators Council. And so the Friday of the week that this episode comes out, Friday the 13th, we will be receiving an award, the Wilbur Award from the Religion Communicators Council for Best Podcast Episode for Opinion and Editorial for 2022. And we're, we're very happy to be receiving that award. And we want to thank all of our listeners who have cheered us on, and we especially want to thank the Religion Communicators Council for the good work that they do. We're very excited about it, and as, as we have more information about it, I'm happy to share that in the show notes and on social media. I just want to jump in two things. One, kudos to my co-hosts here, Heidi and David. Special kudos to David, who does the, the tremendous work of overseeing editing and producing and all the kind of technical, exciting stuff for nerds and scary stuff for ordinary folks, all the kind of things that make this run. But I wonder, too, we might be able to drop back into the feed um, maybe this week around the time of the award ceremony, that uh, award-winning episode. If folks haven't heard it, they can listen to it again. So keep an eye out for that in your Francis Effect news feed for a bonus recap. Well, on the show today, we've got some things to talk about. I'm sure that listeners are thinking about, as we have been, the recently leaked draft of the Dobbs decision having to do with Roe versus Wade. We're also going to be talking about the upcoming closure of Catholic News Service that was announced in the last couple of weeks. Then towards the end of the show today, we're going to be looking ahead to the summer and thinking about kind of what we all are doing as we take our break from season 10 and move on to season 11. So that's all coming up. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here today with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Last Monday, at a little after 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the news organization Politico published an article with the stunning headline, quote, Supreme Court has voted to overturn abortion rights. Draft opinion shows. End quote. At issue was a case before the high court titled Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which was argued last December. Many watchers of the court have speculated that this may be the case that leads the Supreme Court to overturn the 1973 landmark decision Roe versus Wade, which guaranteed a constitutional right for women to seek an abortion. Justice Samuel Alito wrote the draft decision leaked to Politico and it is an interesting and lengthy text. Weighing in at about 98 pages with 118 footnotes, the draft decision reveals a lot about Alito's own judicial and historical reasoning, while also signaling clues about how other conservative justices on the court are thinking. The primary constitutional claim Alito advances, calling for Roe's overturning, rests in the belief that the Supreme Court in 1973 erroneously interfered with the normal democratic process by prematurely establishing a constitutional right that was not supported by a majority of states. The legal and political cover here is that the conservative majority of the court would, in effect, send the decision about legal access to medical abortion back to the states. But there are other clues in the draft decision that show other factors at play, philosophical, historical, and even religious, in at least Alito's thinking. For example, the opening line references the, quote, profound moral issue, end quote, at play in this case. Claims about personhood and the interest in fetal life at contest with the interests, health, and safety of the pregnant woman. And, at times, weird references to centuries-old philosophical and legal decisions, alongside references to conspiracy theories about eugenics. Obviously, this is an issue that is unavoidably tied to Catholicism in the American context. Over the last 49 years, church leaders and many ordinary Catholics alike have marched, protested, lobbied, and voted toward eliciting just such a decision. Two days after the draft decision leak, the chairman of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Pro-Life Activities, 
Baltimore Archbishop William Laurie, issued a statement on the subject. Invoking Our Lady of Guadalupe, Laurie said, quote, As we await the court's decision, we urge everyone to intensify their prayer and fasting that the final decision of the court will bring about the reversal of Roe and Casey. We hope and pray for a change in our laws and stand ready to help all pregnant women in need in each of our communities, end quote. The issue at hand is complex and still developing. There's a lot to process, and all three of us have thoughts about the news of the leak, its content, and the response over the last week. Dan, let's begin with you. What are your thoughts so far? Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings and a lot, maybe more than anything else, questions. This is the first time now, as this episode drops in a week and a half, that I've said or written or tweeted or anything publicly about this leak, this story. And that is deliberate. And that's kind of where I want to begin. I think one of the things that I feel most discomforted by, and I acknowledge the irony of me in my social location as a white cisgender male cleric speaking right now, is that I'm really uncomfortable with the disproportionate voice of men, particularly white men in power, who have kind of controlled this narrative, both in the public debate. And we see that, I think, with, for instance, New York Times columnists. And we see this with personalities on social media. But we see it within the court decision itself. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is alleged to have voted in this initial kind of draft conversation. There's various stages in which justices align themselves or disalign themselves with their colleagues. But she's the, the lone woman. Everyone else is, most of them are either raised or currently identify as Roman Catholic. The exception to that in this case would be Neil Gorsuch, who was raised Catholic, but has since joined an evangelical faith community. So there, there are a lot of feelings about what's going on there. And I think one of the things I've been struck by and have tried to be attentive to is a, a deliberate stance of silence for the last week and a half in order, A, not to rush in too quickly on any side or perspective or opinion or question, but to also honor the space that I think my cisgender women, friends, neighbors, siblings in this world, as well as those who are non-binary and, and, and trans men, who are feeling things about this conversation that I could never feel and will never feel. It may to some listeners seem like I'm belaboring this point, but I think it's the most important point at this moment for a couple reasons. One is for us to remember that this is not the official decision yet. A ruling has not been issued, though everything suggests that whatever the final ruling is going to be next month or, or in early July is probably going to be similar to this. So there's a lot of processing that's going on. But not all processing is equal. And I think one of the things I've been struck by in conversations with colleagues, with friends, and from my observations, both with op-ed pieces and reported pieces where people have gone on the record, as well as social media sharing, which I don't mean to discount, is to recognize how this affects women. And I'm using women inclusively here as in all people who can become pregnant, how Regardless of what side you are on the kind of intellectual or juridical or ethical view or conversation here, that this affects you, uh, which I think by some estimates is 51% of the global population. So the vast majority of human beings are affected by this in a way that the rest of us simply are not. 
We are affected. I don't mean to be dismissive. This is not just for one subset of the population, but I think it's really important for folks like me, men like me, to keep that always already in mind. And so I wanted to begin there. That's the first thing that's, that's on my mind. The second thing is that like all complicated situations, I have a lot more questions than I do opinions or answers yet. I know this may come as a surprise to many of my readers, either previously at America or at NCR, or who listen to this show, which is a show about opinion news for now 10 seasons. You might think I'm just full of opinions, and generally I am, but most of the time I like to ask questions first. And here are just some of them. So I'm going to put them out there, and then I'm going to toss the ball back to the two of you, Heidi and, and David. The first is, what is at stake here in the way that this is being narrated publicly and in the media? So. It's almost to a person on the right, politicians and, and media figures have been hand-wringing about the leak as this great transgression, including the Chief Justice himself, Chief Justice Roberts, where there's been a lot of performance about the leak and not a whole lot of substantive conversation about the content, including by former President Donald Trump, who just had a lengthy interview that was aired this past weekend. He totally avoided the question altogether, which is very curious when you consider the ways in which this has been the pressing issue for that political party. I, I think one of the things I'm, I'm wondering is how is this going to deepen the disparity between populations in the U.S., particularly on the basis of class, race, and, and most obviously gender? I touched on that a bit already. But a lot of the deep reporting that the Washington Post and the New York Times has done with maps in particular to show how this will have immediate effect and on what populations is something that needs to be noted. I also think that there's something about the tension that exists or that we're called to sort of weigh between two things being true at the same time. So this is something I think Justice Alito took advantage of, maybe unfairly, which is the quotations that go back to some of the pre-Supreme Court work of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who back in the 70s and 80s actually was a critic of the Roe decision, not because of its content, but because it seemed to be a premature judicial action with the minority of states legalizing access to medical abortion. And so she, I think, would have, she was on the record many times saying that she would have preferred to see this advance in the democratic or legislative process first before the court weighed in. So maybe it was premature. I think that can be true. And the consequences of 50, almost 50 years later, reversing such a heavy precedent is maybe not a great idea, regardless of your view ethically on the issue. I, I think that's something that's still up in the air for me, and people are starting to grapple with this. And the last thing I'll say is, for us within the Catholic community who identify as pro-life and unapologetically so, what does it mean for those who have been on the extreme of our Catholic and particular pro-life movement who have spent all of their energy, money, time, political lobbying, and so forth, making this the issue, the, I don't know, let's choose a word, preeminent issue? It's as if the dog has now finally caught up with the truck, and I'm curious to see what next. So that's on the one hand. The second issue that's tied to that is where does all that money, energy, lobbying, political influence go next? And I fear that it's going to continue to move toward those who are in very vulnerable situations, those who are LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. So we can go on that. So, I mean, Heidi, yeah, what are your responses immediately? Well, I can just speak briefly to the issue about the need for women to be heard on this issue, both secular and Catholic women and pro-life and pro-choice women. I will say that I am reluctant to speak about my own personal opinions, in part because of my role as a journalist, but also because it's just not a safe space out there to 
even talk about your own opinions. I shared a Pew study that talked a little bit about religious folks' opinions about abortion and got attacked over the weekend just for sharing the study. I will say you're right that the majority of the voices we hear on this tend to be white men in power. And I've noticed an interesting trend in my own work as an editor. I did not hear from a lot of people women or otherwise, who wanted to comment on this after the leak last week. In part, I think readers of NCR in some ways are just kind of tired of the same old argument about people who are pro-choice versus people who believe in pro-life through making abortion illegal. So I think maybe there was just a bit of an exhaustion about it, although people certainly were talking about it everywhere else. And what we did run and what I saw some other Catholic media run were some articles that had some interesting angles. So I did reach out to women who write for us and asked them if they would like to comment on this. And we have a number of essays coming in the future, including from women of color. It's the end of the semester, so many of them are very busy, as you note. But I I saw some headlines. Like for us, we had one who said, I'm an anti-abortion disability advocate, but overturning Roe isn't the answer. And then I noticed other things with headlines that said things like, I've wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade my entire life. Why don't I feel better now? Or I support overturning Roe, but pro-lifers need to understand why so many Americans fear that decision. So I guess what I'm sensing is what hesitancy or concern that if and when this decision becomes finalized, as you said, Dan, as it looks like it might, that this is um not going to be the solution to everything (laughs) for pro-lifers and certainly for people who uh, take other opinions. It's just going to deepen the polarization, and it raises a lot of other issues, which we can discuss. But on the topic of women's voices, I don't think women have always felt very heard about this issue in our country, certainly not in our church. And so if you're wondering why many of them are not willing to really raise their voices and talk about it in church spaces. That might, I'm speculating that might be why. David, what are some of your thoughts? Well, this morning on NPR's Morning Edition, I heard a story that really tried to center the perspective of African-American women on this question. And I've been looking through the NPR website and I can't find the story audio yet. But as soon as I do, I'll make sure to put it in the, into the show notes because I found it to be incredibly powerful because one of the voices that was speaking this morning was basically saying, listen, we definitely want to think about and talk about the importance of centering a woman's right to choose. But what has happened economically for African-American communities has meant that there really isn't a choice oftentimes in those communities, and we need to center that as well. And so for me, I, I think that is really a good place for someone like me to start to really sit down and to say, I don't simply want to center women's voices, but also the most vulnerable women's voices and to be listening to that and to be trying to have that be the space to really kind of begin to maneuver from. I think that I have been given far too much power in this conversation for far too many years. And I think that our church leadership oftentimes assumes a position of power morally, intellectually, philosophically in this conversation that maybe is inappropriate and maybe 
the lay persons in the church need to speak to the inappropriateness of white males with power and institutional authority speaking and speaking over the voices of African-American women. And I recognize that in this conversation right now, we don't have an African-American woman speaking. And so I want to try and and kind of name that and say, working hard to decenter that. And uh, maybe as we move into season 11, we can explore some ways to bring some more diverse voices into these conversations, because I think that it might be an appropriate and good time for us to think about doing that. But I mean, th- those are my initial thoughts. Yeah, I think it's a very important uh, point, David. And I noticed um, over the last week, you were particularly vocal in calling out different news segments on Twitter for, again, centering uh, white male voices. The NPR affiliate that is kind of in my parents' backyard in in the northern country, the Adirondacks of New York State, had a story that ran nationally as well. And again, the people who were interviewed who were very excited and elated about the decision as contained in this draft document were middle-aged white men who identified overtly as being folks who were religious, overtly religious. So I think that's an important point. I think some people would push back too and say, well, wait a minute, one of the the most senior members of the court is a a black Catholic man, and he has been consistently anti-abortion. So how does race play a role in all this? And I think that complicates things a little bit. I take issue with, and this was the illusion that Heidi made in the topper about eugenics, which is Justice Thomas has, whether sincerely or hypothetically, in argumentation before the court, raised this question about if minoritized communities are those who are uh, accessing abortion more regularly than others, and, and that is a perhaps dubious claim to begin with. It gets more complicated than that. He says, well, maybe the existence of abortion is one way of decreasing the African-American population. Now, it's a spurious kind of specious argument, but that it finds itself in the footnote of a, you know, draft majority decision is itself troubling. But to your point, David, I think highlights again how the multi-dimensional elements of, of this topic from a legal standpoint, a sociological standpoint, a moral standpoint, don't get as much credit or as much airtime as possible, which brings me back to something you said, Heidi that I've experienced myself and sometimes to a very extreme degree, which is the what you've experienced as an editor, the what I would call a chilling effect, that it's become so radioactive to talk about anything, particularly within a religious context, the Catholic context, that isn't unqualifiedly against abortion. So if you raise any kind of question, any sort of whatever, not even about the church's teaching as such, but about public policy, for instance, there are armies of trolls that will come at you and make your life miserable. And sometimes, actually, as we've seen with the death of abortion providers or other activists or those who have sought out abortions, that it can be a life or death issue on a broader scale as well. I, I bring that up because I think that has, like like few other topics, frankly, in in the modern Catholic Church in the United States has created this kind of bubble around abortion where people cannot engage it at all in its nuance. And it is a nuanced topic. I'm sorry. It's one thing to think theologically and to think in terms of theological ethics or moral theology and, and make draw a line and make a claim as the church does. And no one here on this podcast is contesting that teaching. But there is this reality, which is the imperfect world in which we live and move and have our being. And I think that because we're not able to, to freely have honest, sincere conversations, it involves raising questions that are not meant just to score points or to advance an alternative agenda, 
But just to try to understand where people are coming from has resulted in this chilling effect. And it leaves people more isolated, more lonely, more despairing. And I think we need to acknowledge that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, witness what I was referencing earlier when I just shared the data that, for example, the Pew study found that while the Catholic Church as an institution very consistently opposes uh, abortion, that 56% of Catholics in that survey said that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Now, there is some nuance with that, the way the surveying is done as well, in that we consistently see that the majority of Americans and religious groups, except for evangelical white Christians, do believe in keeping abortion legal, but also a wide majority or plurality of um, Americans do want some limits on abortion. So what happens when we're discussing Roe and many of these political issues is that we're talking about one way of addressing the issue of abortion, and that is whether it should be legal or illegal. And I think there's no nuance when we get to to talk about might there be other ways to address this issue or even better ways to address this issue, as you said, in a pluralistic society where it has been legal for five decades now. Conversation that I'll be following and that I'll be interested in seeing where it goes is this discussion about how people who have opposed the legalization of abortion and who wanted who saw overturning Roe as the sort of preeminent, as you said, goal, if once Roe is overturned, then will they turn their attention to some of these other ways of addressing the sort of demands part of abortion? Like, why do many women choose abortions, whether it's for financial or other reasons? And, you know, I've seen some debate about that on social media that some pro-life people have said, well, we really had to focus on this first because this was, as long as it's legal, we can't really uh, attend to anything else. And sometimes you have to choose your priorities. But surely once it is overturned, then we can turn our attention to legislation and supporting social programs then that would help women who are pregnant and their children once they're born. The problem is that what we're hearing already, I mean, first of all, I'll believe that when I see it. I hope that's true. But that has not been the history. So we've seen pro-life uh, anti-abortion politicians instead not only not do much to help pregnant women and children, but to actively oppose legislation that could help pregnant women and children, thus leading many of us to how can we not be thinking that it's just a political ruse to try to get people to vote Republican? I think that's really insightful. And it's a question, a pressing question that I have that it may be too early to know or to have sort of a sense of at this point, but that I would encourage those who are in the anti-abortion movement, particularly those of faith, to, to really start be thinking about this. I've been pleased to hear that some who have been leaders in that movement have been on the record, for instance, in first of two-part New York Times daily podcast episode in which, you know, one anti-abortion lobbyist from Missouri, who is also a Roman Catholic deacon, was spoke on the record and I thought spoke in a way that indicated that he recognized within his own movement that there needs to be you know, this is not the end of the story. You can't just outlaw this procedure and then leave women who are in need uh, hanging, as it were. I also think it raises points too. the same party that has pushed so hard to overturn this landmark legislation also has been the one that has tried 
hundreds of times to overturn the Affordable Care Act. And so there are these issues here around access to health care, care for mothers, pregnant women, care for prenatal care and and post-birth care for children, um, and all the other things, Heidi, that you had alluded to a moment ago. I do worry, though, that actually the this might sound cynical, but I think it's actually understating the fact that a lot of people in these circles have acquired a lot of influence, political and ecclesial alike, and they've acquired a lot of power and they have made a lot of money on this topic. So the March for Life every year in Washington has in, in January on the anniversary of, of the Roe decision. That's more than just a political exercise. It becomes this whole sort of event and around which there are other events around which merchandise is being sold. I mean, I hate to be so crass, but I'm not the one doing it, just stating the facts here. And so there's a lot at stake. And I wonder, and I wonder with trepidation, whether or not those in ecclesial and political and civil life alike can resist continuing that sort of momentum, if no longer on the topic of Roe versus Wade, than on other divisive cultural warrior issues. And I think here, again, of some of the most vulnerable LGBTQ folks, we see this in Florida and in Texas. We see the erasure or the effort to erase historical memory around issue of enslavement and racism in this country. And I think, again, I keep coming back to that original point about the visceral experience, the embodied experience that women are having in the light of this news and again, regardless of where you stand on this, that it affects you in a way that's unique. And where is the kind of pastoral presence to accompany folks in that? Or is it just looking at the next thing? Yeah. And I think we have seen both the U.S. bishops and some pro-life groups talk the talk, at least, about the importance of helping women. Now, too often, it's kind of on a small scale level. Let's donate diapers to the Pregnancy Help Center. Let's offer our parishes to help individual women when really what we need is a systemic and governmental. We need it on that level of scale to be able to be real helpful. I Wish I was more optimistic. That's what many of these groups and individuals would pivot towards. And instead, I'm afraid what you're saying is that they will pivot towards other culture war issues, LGBTQ and quote unquote civic critical race theory. I think we're also seeing already that they're not going to let go of abortion as the issue and that the overturning of Roe versus Wade is not the pinnacle and be all end all goal that they thought it was going to be, and that we already see a lot of conversation and movement towards the next thing is the national ban, so that it doesn't uh, go back to the states and be allowed to be something where it's voted on at the more local level. And we see as some of these trigger laws and other legislation is proposed in many states, that it also is taking it beyond what some people would have thought the overturning of Roe versus Wade led to, meaning the criminalization of abortion, not just for people who provide abortions, but for the woman herself being able to be charged with homicide. And that doesn't even get into the complication of ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages and all the other things that many women are worried about. So I would love to be proved wrong and see that's where not where pro-life activists, especially Catholic ones, go. So maybe they can take that as a challenge, but we can reconvene in, in, in our next season and see what happens. And as we're moving to the end of this segment, what I would ask for listeners to do over the next few months is to really think about and challenge you also to pray about what does it mean to be a Catholic in a democracy? Particularly, what does it mean to be a Catholic in a pluralistic society where 
there are people who don't look like you, who don't believe like you, and who don't worship like you, and maybe have sincerely held religious beliefs that start from different premises than maybe you have as a Catholic, or that your bishop has, or that your priest has. I think that oftentimes we come into these situations as if the moral questions are very black and white and very easy to suss out kind of what the right way forward is. My experience in living in the world and being an adult and trying to raise children in this world and trying to navigate my own faith in this world is that it's not easy and that the questions are oftentimes not black and white, especially when we have to balance the real tangible goods of a pluralistic democracy against the demands of a religious faith. And so I I just I I don't necessarily have an answer for that or even a place where I would like you to stake your flag, listeners. I would just like you to pray about it and to pray earnestly about the Holy Spirit and our Blessed Mother opening us up to wisdom in the midst of this so that we might actually be to others what Christ has called us to be, which is to be tender and to be caring even to the people that we think of as our enemies. That to me seems to be the most fundamental and important aspect right now, especially. And with that, let's go ahead and and, uh, leave this conversation for the moment with the notion that probably next fall and maybe even over the summer, we may need to return and pick it up again. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. The Catholic publishing world received some shocking and very sad news last week. After more than 100 years of reporting about the Church, Catholic News Service announced that it will be closing its offices in Washington, D.C. at the end of the year. CNS's Rome Bureau will remain open, but all national coverage will cease and all national CNS jobs will be eliminated. Catholic News Service is a wire service, much like the Associated Press and Reuters, that supplies syndicated news, photos, and other media to other publications. CNS's clients include diocesan newspapers as well as national publications such as the National Catholic Reporter and others. Readers can also access CNS stories directly on their website, but most Catholics likely read CNS stories in other publications without really knowing where they came from. What's also somewhat surprising is that this journalistic outlet was owned by the U.S. Bishops Conference as part of its communications department, originally founded in 1920 as the National Catholic Welfare Council Press Department. It became the National Catholic News Service in the 1960s, and later dropped the national from its name to indicate its broader worldwide coverage. Although owned by the bishops, CNS is a professional journalistic outlet, not a public relations one. As the National Catholic Reporter said in an editorial on the occasion of CNS's 100th anniversary last year, quote, CNS is a reliable, fair-handed operation. Its journalists are professionals, many with previous experience in the secular realm, and not seeking to be catechists or worse, apologists for the faith, end quote. The closing of CNS may look like just one of many of the cutbacks and elimination of journalistic outlets happening nationwide these days. Certainly, budget considerations were at least part of the reason for the decision to close CNS, as some 21 jobs across the Bishop's Communications Department were eliminated. 
At last year's November USCCB meeting, the bishops voted to streamline that department, although it's unclear whether all of them realized that the entire national news service would be eliminated. Heidi, you've worked with CNS for decades. What's your take on all this? How will this affect Catholic journalism and where everyday Catholics in the pews get their news about their church? Well, David, I have to say this was shocking news. I guess it's not surprising in some ways, given the decline of diocesan newspapers. So those are many of the paying clients of CNS. So it's probably not shocking to me that CNS had been facing some of the same financial tightening that many journalistic outlets have been facing. But to completely shut down the National News Service and just leave the Rome Bureau, which is going to apparently provide some content free of charge for anyone, any reader in any publication, extreme and draconian. And Catholic journalists and people who follow Catholic media reacted with shock and sadness. And I would say that goes doubly for me because it's going to affect NCR as we subscribe to a number of news services, including also religion news service and some specifically international Catholic ones. We rely heavily on CNS coverage and especially the use of their photos. So I've long had respect for CNS. Back when I was a diocesan newspaper reporter, they picked up some of my stories. And certainly at many of the publications I've worked at, We've been subscribers to CNS and respect their journalistic professionalism. Now, it's worth pointing out that they are not entirely independent as they are owned by the U.S. bishops. So, for example, there was um, sort of the incident that some people may remember back in 2016 in which their editor-in-chief, Tony Spence, was fired for some tweets that he had posted that were seen to be as too pro-LGBTQ for the higher-ups at the bishops' conference. So unlike NCR, which is independent and does not have to worry about what the USCCB thinks about our reporting, they did have that sort of, what can I say, just that there's something they had to think about. Yet, despite that, there was this incredible amount of professionalism in the journalism they were doing. So the main question and concern, and I'd be curious to see what you guys think about this as well, and I brought this up in a video and a newsletter that I wrote, which is part of NCR's Spring Fund Drive this week, is I'm saying this has ramifications for Catholic media more generally. And for that question that you asked at the end there, David, where are Catholics going to get their news now? Certainly, NCR is still out there doing the reporting that we can. We have a limited staff, so we relied on things like the news service to help plug some of the holes where we couldn't send our own reporter. And what you're going to see instead, I'm afraid, is another news service that came out several years ago. It sounds sort of similar, CNS. This one's called CNA, Catholic News Agency. But this one is owned by EWTN. And I've written about and we've talked about here on this podcast some of the concerns about that media outlet and its reliance on conservative Catholic money. So they provide that news service, CNA, free to diocesan newspapers and other publications. And so many of them have switched from subscribing to CNS to CNA, or some of them have. And I think what we're going to see is more of that, more of these well-funded right-wing Catholic media organizations stepping into the void where this journalism used to happen, and instead them sort of leading the uh, conversation about what can be said about the Catholic Church. 
Yeah, I I have to say I was really shocked to see this announcement. It, it came kind of in little trickles this week because some of the staffers, the staff writers had kind of alluded to it on social media. They themselves, several of whom I know personally or have worked with over the years, were themselves shocked. I, sh- I should say by way of full disclosure that in my previous life before becoming a Franciscan and maybe a few times as a young Franciscan friar, listeners may recall that I used to be a photojournalist. That was my world. And I used to do freelance work for CNS. So a shout out to Bob Roller, who is the photo director of CNS, a great photographer in person, has been there for many years, I think several decades now. And people, a lot of kind of classic pictures, particularly in Vatican City, are taken by Paul Herring, another tremendous photographer for CNS, who's oftentimes the pool photographer for the whole sort of world when it comes to wire services. You know, and, and, and I've also known on a personal level, on a friendly level, on a collegial level, several of the, the staff writers, current and past, who've worked at CNS. And, and Heidi, just to echo your observation about the professionalism, it is an interesting relationship. It's owned by the USCCB, as you said, and David, you mentioned. But there has been, by and large, with few exceptions like that one more recently, which is maybe, I would say, the first ring of the death knell. I have a second in a moment, but Prior to that, there had been a relatively robust firewall between the daily operations of the USCCB and the uh, and CNS. The second death knell was within the past year, their very important documentary service, Origins, discontinued, which I think also portended that this was on the chopping block. We're still waiting to hear more about this. Again, it was a shock to a lot of the staffers, as they themselves have, have pointed out. And I echo with you, Heidi, a concern about who is going to fill the vacuum of Catholic news, particularly on the wire level. And again, I I can't just to build on what you were saying earlier for our listeners, because you and I are we've been in the world and David, too, especially in audio media. We've been in the world of journalism for a long time. And so things like wire service makes a lot of sense to us. And and to a lot of our listeners, maybe they don't know necessarily how stories show up online or, or in newspapers. If you still get paper newspapers, you know, you see Associated Press or EPA or CNS or even CNA. The difference between CNS and CNA, too, is not only the content, its ownership and the professionalism. Part of it is about story assignment, too, that gets lost. Organizations, professional wire services like Catholic News Service and the Associated Press They have assignment editors that do a very good job trying to cover both in depth and in breadth stories that are going on. My personal observation as somebody who, again, I'm technically in the media in some ways today. I mean, we're co-hosts of a podcast. That's one thing. But also as a columnist at NCR, constantly watching some of these things from my own perspective. And one thing I've noticed with CNA is what does and does not get assigned, what gets covered and what does not get covered, let alone the tenor of of the coverage itself. So I will say this. I mean, I hope that there is some sort of turnaround once the U.S. bishops realize what a grave disservice they're choosing to to enact to the church, to the media. You know, it's kind of funny that on the one hand, on one side of their mouths, some of these bishops are constantly decrying the mainstream media. And yet their contribution to mainstream media was funding CNS as an independent news source, auspices of the financial support of the U.S. bishops. With that gone, then they have no kind of religious journalists who are professionals at this, who are contributing to the conversation. So that's worth noting. The one thing I'll say, too, is there may be an opportunity here. Clearly, some of the right-wing outlets like EWTN, National Catholic Register, CNA, that are all under the same sort of heading, they will seek to try to fill that vacuum. 
But a shout out to Religion News Service. This may be an opportunity for them to build up some of their Catholic coverage because that is a huge area field to, to cover. They've got some great uh, staff writers and columnists there, but I think this is an area that would require maybe one or two, if not more, staff reporters to, to cover this church. So those are my initial thoughts. David, what are you thinking? Well, it's interesting. So uh, when I first read the tweet from Brian Fraga talking about Catholic News Service reporting on the closing of Catholic News Service, I, it's, it's ironic that, that this was a news report the Catholic News Service put out about itself, reporting on itself. I was walking into a lunch with the editor of Commonweal Magazine, Dominic Preziosi, who was passing through Chicago. And so I had the chance to break the news to him and he sort of sat back and blinked and I can't speak for his feelings or his impression on it. But what we ended up talking about was very much what you were just saying, Dan, that now there's a vacuum and what's going to fill that vacuum is going to be a much more curated right wing type of Catholic reporting. And I, again, can't speak for Dominic, but I can say for me, I think that to some bishops, that is going to be the best of all possible worlds because it's going to fit with a particular type of culture war mindset and a culture war posture that they've been developing and sort of bringing forth in their various dioceses. And so I, I think that it is a, a problem anytime that a large institution loses transparency and the ability to have people reporting on it with some sort of objectivity or with some sort of distance. But I also think that means that it really is an opportunity, as you both have been saying, for organizations like Commonweal, like National Catholic Reporter, like other independent Catholic organizations to step to the fore and to really speak up and speak out about what's going on. But I think that for the Catholics in the pews, this is going to be a very confusing time because what they will get in terms of information about the church is going to be much more one-sided than it may have been in years past. And that's, I never am happy about that. So those are my initial thoughts. Well, it's interesting, too, to see some of the kind of weird chatter on, again, I, I was off for 40 glorious days of Lent off of Twitter. But being back and, and I've been slow to return, I'm, I'm just not as interested anymore, I've, I've, which I'm grateful for, actually, maybe counterintuitively. But to see some of the responses, particularly from the right to this news, they're celebrating it. I mean, I don't think they realize that they're missing out on something. I mean, wire services like CNS, again, distinct from CNA, CNA does, by and large, some breaking news and some feature reporting. That's kind of their ballywick, and that's what a lot of news organizations do in general. So American Magazine, NCR, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the day in and day out kind of work is. Where wire services like Catholic News Service and the Associated Press or Reuters comes in is they do the nuts and bolts work of coverage. It's the quote unquote boring stuff until it isn't. So it's there There are beats and the, the Cindy Wooden, for instance, at, who covers the Vatican is one of the CNS staffers She's going to write or somebody in that office is going to write every day a short 200 word wire story about what the Pope's homily was that morning. Well, that might not seem like a big deal to anybody until it doesn't reach the world anymore. Who else is going to do it? CNA is not going to invest in that. That's not something NCR can put its resources in or Commonweal or America. And that's the purpose of a wire service. It's, it, they also do breaking news, obviously, and they've done it very well over the decades and feature stories and, and kind of more, they, do, they don't do as much in-depth reporting like some of the other outlets do. But it's that nuts and bolts stuff that's going to be lost and why I want to go back to 
try to like send a message out to the, the folks at RNS to say maybe somebody like Cindy in Rome would be a great person to have there who's doing that nuts and bolts work because sometimes there's really important breaking news that people don't realize until those subscription subscriptions to CNS daily stories start running on the website of an NCR in America. Yeah, well, just to clarify, Dan, I know maybe you didn't mean this by your example, but Cindy is not losing her job and the five staffers in Rome will continue to work for the USCCB and do their coverage. It'll be interesting to see if and how that changes. As I said, what I've heard so far is that it'll now move from a paid service to something offered for free to any publication and to general readers. Now, that is interesting to me, and I don't know that I necessarily understand the thinking behind that decision, like why the bishops have decided that Rome coverage is a real priority for them, whereas national coverage is not. You would think, if anything, the the reverse would be true. But I think it is concerning the kind of, like you said, regular coverage that then will be missing. So you can think about, well, who can pick up that slack? First of all, secular publications will not pick up that slack because they only step in when it's a big national story. And so those of us who cover this day in and day out are used to that, that we write a bazillion stories about something, but then once the New York Times writes their story about it, everybody flocks to that because they have a much larger audience. And sadly, at the local level, so much journalism has uh, been disappearing with the contraction and selling and disappearance of local newspapers. You don't have somebody covering necessarily all the dioceses or local churches. So I'm talking about secular journalism. And then on top of it, we have the cutbacks in diocesan publications as well. So I do think that we are going to see sort of right-wing, well-funded organizations step in, and we're going to see coverage from them that will be out there whether provided to diocesan newspapers or just to be found on social media or when you Google things. And that is problematic because that's not independent journalism like, as you say, we do at, at America or at Commonweal and as at NCR. America is independent, although they have the connection to the Jesuit order. So I, we're in the middle of our spring fund drive at NCR, and I had to pivot from what I had initially said in my appeal to people to remember to donate so that independent journalism can continue to happen, because I had to discuss this and say, it means something for us. It is a challenge. Like you said, Dan, we could step in and do more. We need resources to do that. So if there are any listeners out there that want to hop on over to NCR online and help us with our spring fund drive, that'd be great. But as an editor, I'm definitely thinking about where can I find the money in my budget because I'm going to need to hire more reporters to do the reporting that CNS used to do for us. I think thank you for that correction too. So I'm, and shout out to Cindy. I'm glad that I, I forgot about that. That was just an example of a daily kind of bo- quote unquote boring sort of coverage. Which actually, thinking of it back in the North American context, back in the U.S., this I think to your point earlier, David speaks to maybe part of the agenda of some bishops who don't want the boring stuff covered. This is committee chairs. This is people who are issuing documents at the diocesan level or through USCCB committees. It's the appointment announcements that come out in these 150, 200 word wire stories that most people aren't interested in. They're not going to, like you said, Heidi, they're not going to be taken up by the New York Times or the Washington Post. This is the stuff That is, you know, let's I think we've been kind of dancing around this unwittingly. Let's also talk about the 
the fact that this is about the, the role of the journalist as watchdog. And so CNS does break stories. They're not the lapdog, as it were, of the USCCB, even if they're funded by them. And so this is one less kind of person who's watching, person is in like a, a juridical person, one less institution that's keeping an eye on the bigger institutions, plural. Yeah, and I, I guess what one thing I would add is there's no evidence that there was an ideological reason for this, although we don't really know the real reason. As you mentioned, David, in your intro, there certainly were financial issues. But I can say that I don't think it looks good that the president of the Bishop's Conference, the current president, Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles, currently sits on the board for EWTN, which owns the competing news service. So I think there'll be some continued looking into this. I know we have some stories in process and some commentary about this going forward. I mean, the people who are losing their jobs are journalists, so they're good at digging at things. So I'm hoping that this isn't the end of the story. And if there's more, we'll certainly pick it up again in the fall, too. So we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple weeks, as you know, we get together to discuss news and current events, politics, the church, and all things through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. But here's the truth. We also take breaks, and we need to because even Jesus took breaks. And we've now come to the end of our 10th season of the show, and we're each getting ready for a couple months away from these microphones. But before we go, we wanted to check in with one another for a few minutes to look back at this past season and what has happened since January and also look ahead to our plans for the summer and what might be on the horizon when we come back in the fall for, get this, season 11. I can't believe it. David, I know this has been an eventful spring for you. Why don't you get us started? Well, looking back at the spring since January, I've been ill, as I have related at several points on this program, and I am slowly convalescing. And so looking back, it has been an incredibly humbling time for me to try and get work done when a lot of days I didn't have the energy to stay upright. And I was in a lot of real discomfort to the point of never, ever really having that kind of elongated discomfort before in my life. It has reoriented some of the ways that I think about my life moving forward because I have realized in a very tangible way the limitations of my physicality, the limitations of my embodiment, and the real ways in which I have had to say I can't get that done on the time frame that you're asking for and either we need to have me not do it or you need to give me some grace. Stepping into those moments of being able to say to somebody else that I can't get something done was a real hard learning curve for me. And I am taking that forward as well to learn to build in more Sabbath time into everything that I'm doing and to be a little bit easier on myself than I have been. And so looking forward to the summer, I'm going to rest, man. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some time and sleep, and I'm going to take some time and not have things scheduled on the calendar back-to-back the way that I have in the years past. And so that's some beginning pieces, but I'm also incredibly grateful for the conversations we've had here on the show. I think that we've done some of our best shows ever here, and I really feel like we found the rhythm of three voices 
which when we first were doing this, I think that Dan, you and I were used to talking to one another and we had a kind of rhythm. And then Heidi, when you came in, I think that we would sometimes get lopsided in our rhythm. And I've really felt like the conversations this season have been incredibly fluid and natural. I've been able to sit back and listen, but also I've felt appropriate times to come in. I've never felt shut out of the conversation, but I've never felt like I've been talking too much. So I've just been grateful for all of that. And moving forward into the summer and into season 11, I'm just looking forward to more chances and more opportunities to have conversations like that. But how about you all? What are you thinking about? Well, I can just say that I too have been a little surprised how much I really enjoy our conversations. I mean, we do this for our listeners and we hear from them. Often there's people on Twitter that I see saying how they anxiously wait for our podcast every other week and listen to it. But what I was surprised about was not so much that that I enjoy it, but that that it's helpful to me just as a person and in my own professional life, just to have the conversation, even if nobody else were were listening to it. So just the chance to talk to two other folks who are sort of wrestling with uh, the news of the day in the same way that I am has been really gratifying and helpful. And the fact that we share it with a bunch of folks out there, too, and then we often hear from them is is just icing on the cake. I will say that I'm just going to echo what you're saying, and I haven't had to suffer with shingles to have this insight, but I too, David, am trying to have a little bit of a shift in my life where I practice uh, what I think people have been calling self-care. I have the tendency to be a bit of a workaholic, and this new job for me, or relatively new as executive editor at NCHAR, has really demanded and made it easy for a workaholic to just work pretty much around the clock. And I have a family and also my own health to think about, And so I'm trying to make some priorities to also take care of my own self. And like you said, to sleep, to rest, to read, to exercise, to do all the other things that make us well-rounded people, to pray, to attend to my spiritual life. These are all things that haven't gotten the attention they should have in the last two years. So maybe we can help try to hold one another accountable to that because it's something I try to do every once in a while. and I'm hopeful that I'm more successful at it this time because I'm here I am naming it publicly in the podcast. Yeah, I've been I've been really happy as I've had the opportunity knowing that at least for the last 24 hours we were going to talk about this. Um, just reflecting on the last season, this past semester since January, but also the last 10 seasons. 10, I mean, I bring this up often, I think, on air. And I know privately I do with folks who talk about the podcast. And like Heidi mentioned, you know, people both through social media, but also in real life. I was out at LA Congress back in uh, March. There were literally dozens of people who were talking about the podcast and all very favorably. And so I assured them that in the future, David and Heidi would be joining me in person so that we could do some live recording as we used to. But that brings me to one reflection, which is one of these, I don't mean to be sort of flip in talking about the pandemic and silver linings that can be really off-putting. And so I don't intend to be offensive, but I think one of the positive takeaways was a lesson learned. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, it was primarily David and myself who ran the the podcast as co-hosts. And we did so in person in a physical studio in Hyde Park, Chicago. And we both lived within walking distance of that studio. The pandemic came and we couldn't, even though we were in the same place, just a few blocks away from one another, It was unsafe, as we all know, to meet with other people in person. 
And so we started this remote technology. Again, shout out to David, because people have commented at times that this show sounds better than NPR. It's because it's not better than NPR, but the audio engineering is equal or, or surpasses it. And that has allowed us to be creative and to have the form that we have now. All three of us are in very different places. Different Heidi and, and David are in different parts of Chicago, parts that would require by car traveling with Chicago traffic, probably at least an hour to get from one to the other, which is probably not that different from how long it would take an hour and a half or so for me to get from South Bend, Indiana to, to Hyde Park to a recording studio every other week. And this just makes it more efficient, more functional, and we can bring guests on. So I'm grateful for that. I think that's something that has allowed us to, several of us at different occasions have had to travel and record remotely. And that's when we bust out our NPR-like skills as pseudo re, you know, remote correspondents. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the summer. I, I don't think I'm going to get as much rest this summer as I hear you both talking about. So I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit jealous. Here in the kind of academic world, we're about to move into what in the theology and religion world we call conference season. It usually takes place in June. We have a several important conferences, one of which is going to take place in person for the first time since the pandemic. And that's exciting to see friends and colleagues. There is the opportunity for me to do a couple road races, as I mentioned earlier in the program. I'm looking forward to that. Seeing family for a little bit. I'm going to teach one a week-long summer course. And then I'm actually going to spend most of our summer in South African winter, which is to, to speak on a uh, lecture tour that's sponsored by the Jesuit Institute of South Africa. And I'll be there for a little more than five weeks in, in going around the country in several of the large cities and in, in two neighboring Southern African countries. So on the one hand, that's terribly exciting. It's really wonderful. I've been looking forward to this for several years. Obviously, these kinds of things things take years in, in the making. And so a shout out to Father Russell, the Jesuit director of the Jesuit Institute, and all those who've been behind the scenes planning this. My understanding is this is the first in-person return of this lecture series since the pandemic, where they bring in an international theologian. So I'm honored and excited. But the other side of that, it's always a two-edged sword, is that I'm not going to be able to spend as much time in a North American summer resting up a bit, but it's worth it. I'm looking forward to it. One of the things that I'm thinking about as I rest and recuperate this summer is also trying to figure out ways to stay connected to the Francis Effect audience during our downtime. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like yet, but I've just upgraded some computer equipment here. And I'm really thinking about and playing with the idea of trying to do some live interactions over the summer, particularly with our Patreon supporters, but also more generally. I don't know whether that's going to look like a Patreon live or a Facebook live or something like that, but uh, please do stay tuned because it's something that I'm going to experiment with and you going to LA Rec and having the chance to really interact with listeners has whet my appetite for the chance to have some conversations with the people that we're reaching out to with the show. I'm eager to, to find out more about what they're thinking, what you all are thinking, you listeners out there, and, uh, and how we can uh, continue to make the show meet your needs. So again, not sure exactly what that's looking like. And this is really the first time that I'm naming it publicly, even to my two co-hosts. And so we'll kind of see what that has in store over the next uh, couple of months. Well, I'd definitely be open to that, David. And 
We have a number of projects going on at NCR as well that I'll be turning my attention to. We haven't said much publicly about this yet, but we will be shortly. So maybe I'll break the news here that we're working on a redesign of our website that we hope to launch in late summer, early fall. And that's a huge project, but it's also very exciting because it will just make the organization of all the great content we have there easier for folks to find and to read regularly and to continue to support. So a lot of brainstorming too, just about things we'll be doing going forward, whether it's podcasts and multimedia. We have another new staff writer who's joining us this month. We change over with our our fellows in the summer as well. So we're in the process of hiring a new fellow at this point. And I'm just doing some thinking, trying to do some thinking over the summer during this rest. <laughs> about where to go in, in the next next couple of years. It, it has been gratifying to start getting out of the house and seeing people. I hope to make it to at least one of those academic conferences that you're referencing, Dan, and just to get out and talk to readers, subscribers, listeners, fellow you know, workers in the vineyard of the church. So hopefully COVID will stay at bay, or at least it'll stay at bay as, as a real serious disease as more and more of us get vaccinated and can get out there and start interacting face-to-face. In fact, hey, maybe even the three of us will get together in person. There's some talk of this over the summer. There is. There <laughs> is. The, the schedule juggling is ongoing. We're <laughs> going to make this happen. It's been too long. I I like that idea too, David, that you were talking about. And I think that's something, no promises, because I don't know about the logistics and time zones, but hey, maybe there's an opportunity for me to join listeners from South Africa, the other side of the Atlantic. So that would be kind of cool. If not, other opportunities as well. I think picking up on Heidi's point about God willing, moving to a place where we have a kind of new normalcy in this pandemic season, it'd be nice to do a live uh, recording outside of LA Rec. So in the Chicago land area or in South Bend or something like this, I think if any of the stuff we're talking about as we're planning, dreaming, processing sounds good to you, by all means, reach out on Twitter or uh, through email. David always gives you all that great contact information in the credits. So don't just fast forward, listen to him and then send us a note. Could Notre Dame and the Notre Dame area handle the three of us all in one place doing this in public? I hope so. I hope so. I know a director of a Center for Spirituality that could be interested in hosting something like this, perhaps. I'll have to talk to him. I was going to say, if Notre Dame can't, I know St. Mary's could. St. Mary's has a right of first refusal. (laughs) Well, Heidi, Father Dan, once again, what a pleasure it is to get a chance to sit down with you every couple of weeks and really think about things that are important, but to do it from a standpoint that I don't always get to do when I'm having conversations about politics, given the plural world that we live in. It's a real joy to be able to talk from a centered place in my faith with the two of you and to hear your thoughts and opinions about these things. So thank you again for making the time and thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. I know I speak on their behalf when I say how grateful I am for that. Well, let me say, too, on our behalf, shout out to our listeners. I mean, we've given you some shout outs to those we've encountered online or in person, but we know there are many of you out there. Maybe some of you are hate listening to us and you're welcome here, too. But we really do appreciate it. And I'm especially grateful for when people tell me that our conversations, as meaningful as they are to the three of us, and that we would have among ourselves, even without this platform, I think, because this is our lives. This is our faith. This is our work. This is what we care about. And in so many ways, different and related, we've given ourselves to this work. It's very meaningful, at least to me, and I believe to Heidi and David as well. 
that it's meaningful to you. And people have said, this is something that I don't get anywhere else. And so thank you for that. It does mean a lot. Happy summer to everybody. Have a, have a great Pentecost coming up and may the Holy Spirit guide us all until we come back here next fall. Amen. You've been listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back soon. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.